It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Alright everybody, you're just listening to the trailer for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and the story is as follows. Ten years after the simian flu wiped out much of the world's homo sapiens, genetically enhanced chimpanzee Caesar and his ever-growing band of followers have established a thriving colony just outside of San Francisco in the woods. Meanwhile, a small band of human survivors emerges, which forces Caesar, as a leader, to grapple with the dual challenge of protecting his people and re-establishing a relationship with the remaining human population, the later being Caesar's secret wish. The film is starring Andy Serkis, Jason Clark, Gary Oldman, Kerry Russell, Toby Kebble, and Cody Smith-McPhee. It is directed by Matt Reeves, written by Mark Bombach, Rick Jaffa, and Amanda Silver. Joining me for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. And Dan Bear. Ready for the apes. 
<laughs> Ready for the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> That's going to be the next title <laughs> of the next movie. <laughs> this is our uh, final review of the uh, reboot prequel uh, series for Planet of the Apes. Um, those of us that uh, have been following the site since its beginning knows that I reviewed War for the Planet of the Apes when it released theatrically uh, back in 2017. We, and when I say we, I mean Dan, Josh, and I reviewed Rise of the Planet of the Apes uh, just a few weeks ago, tying it into our Poddemic uh, podcast series of reviews where we were looking at movies that pertained to uh, pandemics. And Dawn of the Planet of the Apes uh, felt like a natural thing to do right after that. Um, to not only complete the trilogy, but also because it's a 2014 film, so it fits in very nicely with our 2014 retrospective, even if it isn't one of the uh, titles we were originally planning to cover. It just sort of fit in nicely. And I'm glad that it did, because this is a movie that I remember it being good. I can't tell you all where my head was at in 2014 that I did not rave about this movie more, and why I incorrectly think or thought that War for the Planet of the Apes was the best of this trilogy of films. Because on a rewatch now, I am convinced that Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is the strongest of the three films, and this movie held up really, really, really high for me on uh, this rewatch um, in a major, major way. I was stunned by the storytelling, which is something that we talked about a lot on the Rise of the Planet of the Apes uh, podcast review. Stunned by the storytelling in this movie. I want to get into it. I want to hear what you guys think, though. Uh, Dan, let's start off with you. How did Dawn of the Planet of the Apes hold up on a rewatch for you? Well, uh, similarly to you, actually, um, I liked this movie when it came out in 2014 but you know like didn't rave about it didn't think it was like best of the year or anything um thought it was maybe slightly worse or on par with rise of the planet of the apes uh watching this now i don't know what i was thinking this is Hollywood blockbuster filmmaking at its absolute finest. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I'll get and we'll definitely get into the reasons why, because I think that there is something that Matt Reeves does with this movie that a lot of other blockbuster filmmakers could pay attention to, um, especially because we're living in an age now where blockbuster filmmaking is so dominated by uh, the Disney formula. Mm-hmm. In terms of spectacle, big special effects, comedy, uh, there is a degree, uh, there's like a balance here uh, where the action is really secondary to the characters and the story. And I think the two work in tandem together in this case. And, and what action there is, is so cleanly shot and edited and easy to follow. Matt Reeves clearly learned from the best, the best, of course, being James Cameron when it comes to action filmmaking. It's just, it's so well done. And the screenplay is <laughs> is so much better than it ever needed to be. I, I, I'm really a little in awe of it. Like, not that I would probably nominate it for an Oscar or anything, but I'm really kind of in awe of the layers to this screenplay and the places that it goes. Not to mention, it 
got me more hyped than ever for uh, his version of of Batman. Uh, he's directing the Batman. I, I, I cannot. I mean, I was excited before, but after on after this rewatch, especially now, I'm even more excited because it's like <laughs> I I can see the potential of what this guy can bring to a character driven blockbuster, and it, it's just got me so so excited. I don't know if I'd go that far, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Josh Parm, what about you? Well. It's very fascinating to me uh, to hear you guys talk about this movie in this way because I'll be honest with you, I kind of have the opposite reaction wow. to you. And it's not that I don't like the movie. I actually do like it. I think it's very entertaining. But I actually do consider this to be the weakest of the three movies in this trilogy. And I actually did not really find the story and the characters to be that compelling, actually. Um I mean, the human characters also, just like the first one, they're not that great, but I feel like they're even worse here with one character in particular, which we'll probably get to. <laughs> and even with Caesar, to be honest with you, like I just didn't really get that much into his emotional journey and his relationship with Koba, I thought was sort of not that interesting either, I have to say. It's not that it's bad work, but... I don't know, just for some reason, this movie does not pull me in emotionally into particularly Caesar's story like it does with Rise and War. So at the end of it, I end up liking the movie for its action spectacle, which is done really well. But that, to be honest with you, that's sort of all I end up really appreciating out of it. That is just a really good action movie, but I don't really get that much more out of it. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, state my negatives with the movie right off the bat here because then i want to focus on the positives and i want to see if we can uh change josh's mind uh by the end of this uh, podcast review (laughs) so my negatives there is still weak dialogue for the human characters in this movie and a lot of that is attributed i think to uh this one human character who is like quote unquote the asshole of the group that's causing trouble for everyone this guy carver uh, yeah. he, he and it's like it's so unnecessary and silly compared to all the other characters that it just feels so one dimensional. I, I I really couldn't stand it, and I understand that they really really want to have um, a Koba kind of character on the human side, but I don't know why they couldn't have just given that to the Gary Oldman character. Why you have to have this secondary character here uh, who honestly just feels so out of place amongst all the other uh, characters on the human side of things. The other thing uh, that I also noticed on this rewatch is that I did find that there was a slight pacing decrease uh, from the time of the attack on the colony by the apes to Caesar um, healing, coming back to fight Koba in the finale. Um, I really felt like this was a powder keg of a movie that was just building and building and building in tension. Um, and, it, and it culminated in this really, really terrific action sequence. Um, but then it, it, it slowed down, I think, a little too much. And it kind of lost a little bit of momentum. Uh, and then it ends really well. I think it sticks to landing very, very, in a very emotionally impactful way. Kind of ties together the themes of the movie. Some of the dialogue uh, also gets uh, reset again, kind of tying things nicely together. Uh, but other than that... Other than that, I, I I just had no complaints with this. Uh, Dan, what about you? Yeah, I do think um, there are some pacing issues. 
Um, the film feels a little long, even though I have trouble imagining, like, because I think that the general plot is really strong, and I don't know that I can imagine the plot taking any less time than it does, but it definitely feels... Um, it, it feels longer than it is. I mean, it's only 130 minutes. It's two hours and 10 minutes. But it feels a little longer, and I wonder if a shorter runtime would alleviate some of the issues with it. I mean, I do... I have a similar issue to um, to the first one, and I think it's even compounded in the third, that I just don't find all the human characters that interesting. <laughs> um, no. I, it, it doesn't help that it's Jason Clark and Carrie Russell who can be good actors um, in the leads, but they're not given characters that have a lot of personality or subtext to play. So there's just not a lot for them to do. Yeah, I actually I did forget to mention that in my arguments um, against the human characters in this. I did feel that outside of the surface level of what we get about these characters that Jason Clark, Kerry Russell both have uh, former lives. They've met in the aftermath of the simian flu and they've kind of come together and formed this bond between them. Outside of that, it's like I really never got any kind of character development or growth. You know, the movie once again gives that all to Caesar, yeah, which is great. And it's one. Of, and as I said on the last review, it's one of the great character arcs in cinematic history across all three films for him. But everybody else suffers as a result of that. And yeah. you know, you hate to see people like Carrie Russell, Jason Clark. Uh, get wasted and then you have Gary Oldman who's shouting and trying to <sighs> save the movie I don't know what he's doing <laughs> he's being Gary Oldman he's giving same performance he gave in Leon and the fifth element except not as campy and like it's you know it, it's what it is it's fine they're animals <laughs> Actually, you know, I I, I want to clarify. It's not the same performance as those other movies. I think it's definitely more. He's in more. Um, he feels more like he's in Commissioner Gordon uh, mode in this movie. I would say, if you ask me, like, I because you're right. I don't think it's as campy. I do, I do think that there are some elements to what he's doing though that um that are grounded. Like that moment he has with the iPad uh, does wonders for his character. I wish there was more of that. In like moment scenes of dialogue or something to just like kind of paint him a little bit broader, but instead I feel like he's giving this super loud performance to overcompensate. That does wonders for his character. Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> I I don't know. I, I just don't know. Like when you were saying like it does wonders for his character, I don't know if I would go that far. I just really feel like every single human character in this movie is just really just terribly written and this was a similar complaint to you can have really to all the movies and we even discussed it with rise but i felt like even in rise of the planet of the apes they were not that great characters but at least they were kind of passable i felt like literally nothing for any of the human characters in this film and when you particularly get to carver who was just this cartoon of a villain that is so poorly drawn he's like a it's like a caricature and he acts so stupidly that it just really pulls me out. And it really kind of makes all the conflict seem so manufactured. And it, it doesn't even help later scenes where I want to get invested in this uh, in further conflict because it all just seems so manufactured by that point. 
I will I will say I don't necessarily disagree with you, Josh, but for me, the whole point of all of these movies is the storyline with the apes. And that storyline, particularly in this movie, is so strong and so multifaceted and so layered. The dynamic, the relationship between um, Caesar and Koba, I mean, (laughs) people were raving about the storyline in Black Panther and the conflict between... um, Oh God! Whatever their names are, see, I don't even remember. That's how Killmonger yeah. and yeah, uh, T'Challa. T'challa. Killmonger <laughs> and T'Challa, and like <laughs> this predates that by four years. Oh yeah, no, it's very underrated. I think in that regard, yeah. And the, the human storyline, I think, exists just to parallel the things that they're doing between Caesar and Koba in this movie. And I think in order to examine that, you have to examine the character of Koba and realize that Koba is a character who continues on from the first film. He's introduced in the first movie as a side character. And he's an ape that was kept in a cage, was experimented on, tortured, and he has seen the ugly side of humanity versus Caesar who through James Franco, John Lithgow, Frida Pinto has seen uh, the better side of humanity. But Koba's never, ever experienced that. He is a, a, a product of hatred, of, you know, it's like it's like somebody coming from a, 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 an impoverished community, you know, where drugs on the street, uh, family in and out of jail or something. And it's like you just brought up in this world and that's all that you know. And he cannot see the vision that Caesar has of humans and apes coexisting together, maybe not as like friends, but at least they can share this world together. Apes over here, humans over there, no conflict. We just do our own thing. You do your own thing. And Koba just, he he can't, he can't understand that. And I, I think that that motivation for that character is so strong. And the scene where I think it, it it's so perfectly illustrated is when uh, Caesar tells him, you know, the humans are going to come and do uh, work. And Koba says, you know, he points the scars all over his body. And he's mm-hmm. like, human work. This is human work. And he's basically painting this picture that humanity at its core is ugly and evil and will ultimately destroy them for true dominance. Uh, over the planet and which in this movie he's not wrong (laughs) no it's in our very nature to be the dominant species of this planet um i i can understand that element of it i also find it very interesting that as an extension of that he tries to establish dominance over caesar as the leader of the apes so once again they're, they're they're that's like just one of many different parallels that they uh, use with the human group and the ape group. Uh, Another one of them being fear um, as a motivator for uh, the attacks and uh, everything that kind of transpires in this movie. Because you fear what you don't understand, right? And the humans don't understand the apes. I mean, they're talking, walking apes on horses with giant spears. Mm -hmm. Scares the ever-living shit out of them. And when you fear something that you don't understand... You're going to naturally react um, 
as we do as humans, to try and establish some level of dominance and resort to violence to do so. And I, I find it very interesting that on the ape side of things, they're also fearful of the humans as well, and they feel that they also need to establish dominance, not to um, uh, not to selfishly, you know, rule the planet, but just simply to survive. And that's what it all comes down to at the end of the day is just survival for both and realizing that you don't need to wipe out each other in order to achieve that. Yeah, and that was the thing for me that really sort of sealed the deal with this movie being so strong is what watching that storyline play out now in 2020 it, i i don't think that i could have predicted in 2014 just how much that that story would affect me 5 years in the future because like that i mean we're living that story every day and like how <laughs> basically all I just keep coming back to that scene where Caesar and the apes come to, you know, basically show the strength of their forces to the humans. And he said, and he says basically like, I, I don't want war, but if you guys start it, we're going to fucking finish it. Yeah. And like, we, like, we just want to live our lives over here and be peaceful. And of course the humans well, no, they don't like they don't take too kindly to that, except for the people who have spent time with the apes and under come to understand them and, you know, really live and look and watch and notice. And I, I that's just a very powerful storyline to me. And I in 2014, I think. I thought that it was a bit simple um, and like obvious and watching it now, I'm like, well, <laughs> maybe we need something even more obvious. Mm. And you know what? You say all that. And I do agree with the concept that that is what the movie is dealing with in terms of in terms of its themes. And that is interesting. I think for me, there is just something about the execution of it that just doesn't really land for me. And I think it's really in the relationship between Caesar and Koba, which for some reason just does not really connect with me. And I think maybe it's just because we don't really get that much interaction, it seems like, between the two of them. So their power dynamics, while I understand it, it just doesn't feel like, it, it kind of feels like the movie telling me that there's a power dynamic instead of it naturally happening within the movie. And I think there's also an issue with Koba for me where I think one of the reasons why Caesar as a character is so fascinating is because they put so much time and effort into selling the face of Caesar and particularly his eyes. And Koba doesn't really have that. And I think that's another element that really keeps me from getting into this character because he just doesn't have the same emotional weight that it seems like Caesar has in terms of how they just basically animate him. So at the end of the day, like, I appreciate what he's going through as a character and how he is written, but there is just something in the way that this story presents him that I just really struggle to connect with. I, I think mm -hmm. uh, that's maybe deliberate in the sense that um, – I don't think it's a mistake that Caesar is animated to appear more human than the other ape characters mm. who definitely look more like apes. Uh, I think that's definitely by design for sure. And I think a lot of that is also 
weaved into the story as to why he is viewed as a leader because he is different than all the other apes. I what I'm what I was very struck by in this movie, uh, in terms of the character of Caesar and how he's viewed by the other apes, is the way that Andy Serkis and the character of Caesar utilize very simple actions or mm. even glances that speak volumes to the other apes. I mean, just like a simple raise of his hand is able to silence the constant noise of all the other apes. And these like, you know, like anytime, like, like, like that scene where Koba is forcibly uh, trying to explain to Caesar why he disagrees with him and why helping the humans is wrong. And Caesar doesn't even say anything. He just gives him this glare. And Koba just backs down like immediately, like, oh shit, I've pissed him off. You know what I mean? And then he asks for forgiveness with the hand gesture and such. Um, I think those moments of power are very, very captivating because not only is it uh, Caesar as a character establishing uh, dominance and power over Koba and over the other apes, but it's also Andy Serkis just commanding the screen, dude. Even if, like, you're going to make the argument of, oh, how much of it is Andy, how much of his visual effects, I, I think that that human element of Caesar, that human performance, that thing that we always talk about that is Andy Serkis, um, I think that's where it comes through probably the most, and maybe that's why the connection with Caesar for us is stronger than the other ape characters, maybe. Yeah, and, I mean, Andy Serkis is the best thing about yeah. this movie, for sure. And he's always been the best thing about mm -hmm. these films. And I do understand wanting to give him the bulk of kind of the... Like, you want to am animate him to the point where he does have the most emotional resonance and he does stand out from the other apes. I do think, though, that if you're going to set up a main antagonist for him and you maybe want to have him come from a position that seems more complex you might want to extend a little bit of the same thing to him but you know that's my perspective of it well can we also touch upon the everything i think that maybe works about this story maybe for dan and i is the shakespearean element which we talked about in rise uh and that's where obviously caesar gets his name from but in this power dynamic right there is a coup where uh koba attempts to uh, have Caesar assassinated and blames it on the humans, even though he does it himself. I mean, that's that's Scar killing Mufasa right there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that, that's Shakespearean tragedy at its finest. And as a result of Koba's hatred and the evil that he just has in his heart, the apes attack the humans and so many apes die as a result of this conquest. And it's like, all for what? For what? And then to the point where Koba is killing other apes that are loyal to Caesar, not loyal to him and disobeying him to once again try to just establish dominance through violence. It, it, oh my God, I... I was really, really in love with this also because of what Dan was saying before in the sense that I do see parallels to today's society in many ways of human conflict and um, different ideologies like clashing together and how it's becoming uglier and uglier and uglier mm. to the point that uh, we are going to probably eat each other alive at some point, I imagine. Uh, but this movie really goes pretty far in showing that this is not the way and that there has to be some level of peace and coexistence for us to 
survive as a species? I think the thing with Koba, and I think that the um, one of the things that this uh, hampered Josh's viewing a bit of it is like there's a decent time jump between the first movie and this movie. Ten years, yeah. And it's not really made clear how Caesar has led them and how the apes have come to be as they are other than like he gave them all the serum or whatever at the end of the first movie and suddenly they're all smart and i think that the movie could have shown a little of what caesar has done in the intervening years to make the apes the way that they are um well and instead of showing us that the movie instead infers all that by exactly Exactly. And I think that that's the thing. Like, it's it's a lot of all the dynamic between him and Koba and the other, like, ape leaders, in quotes, um, is all sort of inferred by, like you said, by, like, glances and little actions and things like that. And I think that it, it the movie is relying a lot on you remembering a lot of the things that we learn about ape behavior in the first movie to understand the dynamics at play in this yeah. movie. And I I sometimes question uh when movies and TV shows rely on our knowledge of things that happened years ago in previous installments for something so heavy because I, I remember when I first saw this movie I did not remember Koba from the first movie at all. Sure, I get that. At all. Because yeah. he's so minor of a character. I do remember uh, now, I mean, obviously the scene that sticks out is when he pushes David Oyelowo's character off of the uh, bridge. Uh, that, that right. I think, is probably the most memorable moment for him in the first film. Yeah, and now, like, watching these two within uh, a much shorter succession of time, I was like, oh, I get it now. Hmm. <laughs> And, you know, another interesting thing, too, I like is that Caesar keeps giving the humans opportunity after opportunity to establish trust and and they keep on destroying it every time. And you can't say that Caesar does not try, you know, (laughs) like you can't say that. But there are people on the human side that are equally as bad as Koba. And it just speaks to a reality that those who want world peace and those that hope for a better future Unfortunately, there's always going to be evil in this world. There's always going to be fear and hatred uh, that is going to drive us to do very terrible things as a species. And you can never eradicate that. And I think that Caesar's uh, ideology of ape does not kill ape, you know, because keeping a guy like Koba around, you know, we look at something like that and we think to ourselves, well, that's 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 a bad decision. You know, that's going to go nowhere at some point. But I do believe that his ideology is one that other leaders should aspire to. And and part of the thing that I love about this movie, and I, I like not that other movies and TV shows and plays have done this before, but I think this does it really well, is show that, you know, like, can't come at anything from a place of pure kindness and trust or pure hatred you have to mix them both because it is ultimately you know caesar's 
downfall and the downfall of his vision for this world that he does keep Koba around and implied because he he understands Koba and kind of feels sorry for everything that he's suffered at the hands of the humans. But then again, at the same time, you know, when Koba does take over, you know, he frames the humans for having murdered Caesar when it's really himself and then brings about his, not only his own destruction, but the destruction of the ape settlement. Like it's because of his actions and leading the apes into war that the precarious trust that Caesar has built with them is kind of broken and leads to the, um, the thrilling conclusion. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. It almost like it almost astounds me when you think about human nature and you also think about other um, elements in history, other times in history, uh, things like the Cold War uh, between, you know, the U.S. and the Russians. It's almost incredible to me that like we did not actually go to full out nuclear war with Russia (laughs) Um, based upon especially you know, what you're watching in a movie like this, where it almost feels like conflict is almost is unavoidable. Yeah. Uh, when you have uh, both mixture of good and bad people on both sides of a conflict, uh, it, it, it astounds me. It really astounds me, like in certain situations like that, or even right now with us and uh, North Korea uh, currently at the moment. It's like, I cannot believe that something has not happened yet, <laughs> you know, but Hey, fingers crossed um, that something won't happen. Uh, I needed to clarify that. <laughs> um, another thing also I want to bring up here is um, another parallel. Caesar's son, uh, Blue Eyes, uh, also undergoes a bit of a, a slight uh, journey in this movie as well in that uh, loyalties to both Caesar and Koba are kind of uh, conflicted a little bit because, uh, you know... Blue Eyes does not necessarily uh, trust the humans either and is also having trouble seeing uh, things from Caesar's uh, perspective, but he has a deep love for his father. I really, really, really wish that they would have done something, anything with Cody Smith McPhee in this movie to kind of parallel that, but they don't. And he does nothing in this movie at all. <laughs> I don't. I think that would have been building the lily a bit too much. Uh, but I just like, I, it goes back to what, I, what we were saying before about how the human characters and this just gets so sidelined and gets saddled with nothing to do nothing 
Yeah, I, yeah. the human characters are all, like I said, they're even worse than they were in the first movie. And But even when it comes to Blue Eyes, like, I do understand this the sort of, like, tortured inner turmoil that he's going through. And, and I admit that that's all there. I still kind of feel like it's not that... They don't really dive that deep into it. And I think about that moment when he reunites with Caesar after he thinks that he was killed and they have that conversation about basically bringing him back and he actually speaks to his dad. And I feel like that moment is treated like, oh, my God, he spoke. This is something like he's never done before. And it's a moment where he's really connecting. But I don't feel like that was ever really established. Like he wasn't somebody who avoided talking because it was like a human behavior or something like that. And it felt like it was a moment the movie wanted to have more significance than it actually had for me. Mm, interesting. Uh, see, I think the moment that stands out more than that is the moment where he spares Malcolm. Yeah. I like I like that moment a lot. But the, I mean, there's also a parallel going on between Blue Eyes and his friend Ash, right? And mm-hmm. the scene where Koba is trying to get Ash to kill a human, and then when he doesn't do it, he pushes him off. Like that scene kind of wrecked me a little. Not oh, lie. me too. Not Absolutely. <laughs> And I think a lot of it is the way that Matt Reeves directs it as well, um, because he directs it in a way where, yeah, these are ape movements, ape sound effects, and we're seeing apes on screen, but they're doing very human things that we've seen in other forms of storytelling before. And it just has like this kind of unique novelty to it to see these tropes that we're accustomed to, like I said, dating back to the works of Shakespeare play out in front of our very eyes like this. I, I I find it fascinating in that regard. Yeah, it's it's just like the, <laughs> I mean, again, just taking these very basic kind of story beats that we've seen time and time again, and it's not just the novelty of seeing them do it with apes. It's the, the skill with which they reached that moment almost organically. And then the way it's filmed with this, I'm going to call it grounded epicness. Okay. Um, because it does feel like epic and large, but also kind of small and personal, um, I, I think is very, very strong. Yeah. You know, it's a really, really good illustration, I think, of what real courage and what real strength is, because there are multiple displays of that in the movie by a lot of different characters. And I really, really like that in contrast to strength as a uh, strength being um, shown um, as a means of uh, uh, through violent means. Uh, And the movie also ends on a beautiful and graceful note, you know, a message of hope, despite all of the devastation. You know, there is a sunrise amongst the wreckage at the end of this movie as the apes are united in um, once again, hailing Caesar as their um, as their leader and. There is also a mention uh, by Gary Oldman about the uh, human army to the north, which, you know, sets up the next film. So, yeah, I mean, there's also like there I just feel like there's an added layer of tragedy to all this because we know what happens ultimately. I mean, it's right there in the title, right? Yeah. So I I think that it and the movie and Rise particularly use that to their advantage in a lot of really um, interesting ways. Yeah. 
I actually have to admit, this is very interesting. I was not expecting this at all. But upon my rewatch of this movie, and I kind of said this earlier, but it actually lessened war for me a little bit. And I don't I, I, I feel compelled now to rewatch war. Um, I don't know when I'll find the time to do it again, but I, I do feel compelled to rewatch it uh, after this. But it's a very, very different type of uh, movie than one would expect following Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. One that is much more personal to the story of Caesar and not as grand in scale for the quote unquote planet of the apes. You know what I mean? Uh, so I find that pivot towards making this more about the journey and the character arc of Caesar throughout this whole trilogy to be a very, very smart one, a surprising one, and one that is ultimately more rewarding. Um, but I, I do agree that I think the scale of the action in this movie and also the story that was kind of uh, interwoven with it maybe pushes this one now above War of the Planet of the Apes for me a little bit. Final notes. I do have... Um, I do have two things here. Uh, one, a much darker color palette than the last film, more desaturated. I'm a little confused as to why uh, Caesar's skin appears more white than brown at times in this movie. Mm. Uh, but that's a, I don't know, maybe someone can explain that one to me. Uh, and also, I have a note here extremely underrated production design work. Yeah, production design's really good. I, I would Very that. strong. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I was watching this and I thought to myself, holy shit, am I going to have to put this in my lineup for production design when we do MVP Film Awards? I might. Because <laughs> the ape home, um, the colony for the humans, uh, all this use of wood and trees and rock, and I just, it looks incredible. <laughs> it looks so yeah. good. The ape home especially is so... So good. So well done. And there's so many like little details that make it feel so fleshed out and real. And yeah, I would definitely say that the the production design is pretty strong. I don't know if it was going to go on my ballot. I don't know if I go that far, but it is very, very good work. Yeah. Uh, The scene where they do attack the humans, uh, the sound work uh, in Michael Giacchino's score, highlighting the emotion of that scene uh, is also really well done. And I particularly love that uh, tank shot of the mounted camera on the tank. Best shot in the movie. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Dan? Uh, any other uh, points, final thoughts? Not really. I think I've said everything. <laughs> what about you, Josh? Well, I, I think the only thing that I would just say is, I, I, it might seem like that I'm pretty negative on the movie, but I'm really not. Like, I have problems with it, but I do think that it is a very entertaining film. And when it does really kind of go into some of the like action spectacle, I am very invested in it. And I do think it's very well done. I do have issues with the story and the characters, which worked for you guys, but just didn't really connect with me in the same way. But I do like the movie. I think it is well done. I just think that the things that I like about this trilogy just didn't really hit me as much with this one as they do with like the first and third one. Yeah. And once again, um, the human characters that are introduced don't carry over to the sequel either, which I once again (laughs) think is a little, well, I think it could have actually have been good to have established character work and then maybe expand upon that in another installment. Um, Same thing, like I said, with Rise and the lack of James Franco uh, possibly being a part of this movie in some form or way. But 
it does kind of help to make each film stand on its own, which I uh, also like as well. So I'm a bit of a mixed bag on that, I guess. Well, we also said that it kind of would make sense with Franco's character because that was somebody that he was introduced to and he gets his view of humanity from that character. And he has an emotional connection with him to begin with. He doesn't have that connection with any of the human characters in this film. So I'm, I do not miss these human characters at all going forward. Sure. Um, oh, one other note uh, I have here. I, I kind of cringed a little bit in the very, very beginning when the apes did confront the humans. And um, Caesar says the line, go and it's so blatantly mm. trying to mimic the no moment from the first film that i i'd roll my eyes just a little bit at that moment but mm-hmm. uh, that's a little that's a little side note that's nothing major uh all right my grade is a strong eight out of ten i considered going higher but um i do agree with some of the points that josh did make especially as it does pertain to the human characters even though um, I admired the attempts to draw parallels between their camps and the uh, apes camp in this movie. I don't think that it was 100% perfect at times, um, even though I did emotionally connect to it all all around more than maybe uh, some others did. Um, otherwise, though, great spectacle, great action filmmaking, great vision for the movie and I, I, I really really appreciate the uh, grandiose uh, themes and I, 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 I love I don't know what it is man I don't know what it is but same thing like you said with Black Panther I love that type of protagonist antagonist relationship where both characters want the same thing but they're just trying to achieve it in two different ways and it's that ideolog- uh, ideological clash between them i find that ever so fascinating and so revealing as well about human nature so eight out of ten for me uh dan bear what about you uh i'm same. it's eight out of ten um i think the action filmmaking is so incredibly strong <laughs> and just it gets me every time i'm granted i've only watched this movie twice but <laughs> <laughs> even Koba riding a horse through fire which you might think is like eye rolling uh it's done in such a way that it's more iconic uh, for his character as a as a as a symbol than anything, and you buy into it, you know. Yeah, it's just like everything in the movie is done so well; it really is. Josh, I am at a seven out of ten for this one. I do like it. I just don't like it quite as much as you guys. Um, it is very entertaining, and I do enjoy watching it. But I do also admit that, especially if I think about the entire trilogy, this does rank at the bottom for me, which is still saying something considering that it's a good movie and says a lot about the trilogy as a whole. But I do walk away from it thinking it was good. I enjoyed it, but I don't really end up thinking that much more about it. Yeah, I I, I find it very interesting that on these rewatches that I was higher on Rise when I saw it in 2011, now I'm a little bit lower on it, but I still like it. I'm, uh, if you guys remember, I was a 7 out of 10 on that movie. Mm-hmm. Dawn, I have a greater appreciation for now on this most recent rewatch, where in 2014 I saw it and I was like, hey, it's good, you know? But I think it just got uh, swallowed by uh, other movies that year that just had my attention a little bit more. 
And War, I had such anticipation and such buildup for that movie. And when I saw it, I instantly thought it was fantastic. And I absolutely loved it. And I think I gave it a nine, maybe an eight. I, I gave War for the Planet of the Apes a nine, and it is on my top ten. I, yeah, I think it was my number 11 that year. I don't remember exactly, but I know it was up there for sure. Now, I like I said, after watching Dawn, I feel like I need to watch War immediately right after to see if I'm going to go back down to an 8 or if I'm going to stay at that 9, even if it was a 9. I don't know. I, I Maybe they're equal to me. I'm not sure. <laughs> but we'll see. Uh, but for those of you that do want to listen to my uh, War for the Planet of the Apes uh, review, that is a podcast that I did back in 2017 that I think I did with my friend JD from Incession Film that you guys can listen to. Uh, so, kind of finishing things off here, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes nominated once again for the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects that year. <laughs> and just like the last film in 2011, here in 2014... Uh, it lost to Interstellar. Other nominees included Captain America to Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, and X-Men Days of Future Past. But I think if you asked most people, this was a race between Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and Interstellar. Yeah, it was only between those two. And Dawn of the Planet of the Apes uh, won uh, visual effects that year from... The yes. Critics' Choice Award, who I think they rewarded all three films in the trilogy, if I remember correctly. yeah. Yeah, uh, and the so. Visual Effects Society. Who I think also awarded all three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's as far as these movies could ever get. They could never get past that it's... and grab an Oscar for their work. Nope. It's really kind of shocking to me, honestly. Uh, I, I think if there was ever a time, the best time would have been the 2011 rise. Yeah. I think that would have been the most ideal and best time to do it. And then I wouldn't I wouldn't feel so bad about the losses for Dawn and War afterwards. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that because of the three, this is the one that I'm actually sort of okay with them not winning. I mean, you know, Matt, that I'm a big Interstellar fan. So I, of course. I do have an appreciation for like the blend of practical and CGI work in Interstellar. Yeah. And to be honest with you, even in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, one, I don't think it's necessarily like that much of a jump in terms of what they were doing from Rise to Dawn mm-hmm. in terms of their technology. And even in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, there are some moments where it does seem like like their rendering isn't as polished as it could be. There are some moments where I'm looking at the faces of the apes and it's like, mm-hmm. this looks a little like not as sharp as it could be. There are some apes, definitely the side uh, character apes that – like we said before, don't look anywhere near as good as Caesar does, for example. Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, I even think there's some scenes with Koba that don't even look that great. I agree. They're like watching it now. They're the scene with with Koba when he steals the machine gun. There is some moments in that scene where I watched and I was like, "Ooh, you needed another pass at the visual effects. Mm. You. And overall, it's still great work, certainly. Like, yeah. it definitely deserves right. a nomination. Yeah. yeah. But I I am not tortured at all about Interstellar winning the award over this entry. Oh, me neither. I, I no. would say that <laughs> um, this absolutely should have gotten a production design nomination over Into the Woods. Okay, that's very fair. <laughs> I mean, I can agree with that, yeah. That, that was actually going to be my, my next question was if you could nominate it anywhere else, where else would you nominate Dawn? 
Um, that is an easy call for me there. Um, absolutely. If we're talking about CGI that looks fake, I mean, let's talk about Into the Woods, shall we? <laughs> or, or you know what? Let's not, because we don't need to. Yeah, we don't do. have to. <laughs> what do you guys think of uh, Michael Giacchino's uh, score? I like it. It's, it, it's a good score. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's one of the best of the year. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I've always liked it, but I've never loved it. Yeah. Even the main theme that they carry on into um, War uh, that plays at the very end of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes plays at the end of War as well. I, I've never, yeah, I've never latched onto it with like a, a great de- degree of passion. Yeah, it's fine. It, it works for the movie. Um, there is like this kind of fun little uh, motif that plays throughout it that is, you know, sort of fits the fun action movie. But I wouldn't say that it's anything extraordinary to be singled out. I would say, though, that I would maybe give this movie uh, some credit for its sound work somewhere, maybe in sound mixing that year. Yeah, I mean, I think the sound work sort of like other elements of the film. It's good, but I don't know if I would necessarily say, like, give it a nomination. But, yeah. you know, not to say that it's, it's bad or anything. I just don't. I think there were just other things that I responded to more in terms of that work. I guess I just find it surprising in retrospect that all three of these movies only got the visual effects nominations and they never got anything else. I mean, considering how big hits they were both critically and commercially, it's very surprising. And then they had to, of course this year they had to go and give a lone sound editing nomination to the Hobbit, the battle of the five armies, which no one liked. Yeah. That was just a case of most sound. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I definitely agree with you on that one. Uh, But yeah, I would love to be able to say that I would have given it to Dawn of the Planet of the Apes for visual effects this year, but nah, my vote probably also would have gone to Interstellar as well. Yeah, same. And there is another film, uh, which we will talk about on another podcast, uh, that would have also gotten a Best Production Design nomination. Um, another sci-fi film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Deserved maybe a few other nominations too. <laughs> yep. It's Snowpiercer. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that'll do it here for our discussion of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, Dan Bear, where can they find you on the Internet? You can find me on Twitter at Dance and Dan on film. What about you, Josh? Where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Dawn of the Planet of the Apes here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us, including other 2014 retrospective reviews, which we are continuing to do we have wild and inherent vice coming uh to the patreon this month so we're really really excited uh to give you guys that as well as other content pertaining to next best series where we review television and next best theater where we review the world of theater arts as well thank you so much for listening as always and we shall see you all next time Greer is 
in these movies. <laughs> like, like, talk about just flying under the radar. Like, no one ever talks about the fact that Judy Greer was a part of these movies. <laughs> you know? <laughs> because she's barely given anything to do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It's true. It's just, it needs to be, it needs to be said. Yes, indeed. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.